Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fuel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. It's good to have you back here. Welcome back, Jim. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm alright. It's a little bit cold outside, which makes me not happy. The cold and the snow are not my favorite things in the world, but, um, you know, we, the only way out is through, so, you know, you just keep your head up and you shovel. Yeah, I <laughs> I saw that uh, you have a winter storm warning headed your direction, and I, I can't say I'm jealous at all, so. No, I hit the grocery store this morning, and it was kind of a zoo, but at least I got enough food to be able to, uh, to be socked in for a couple of days if I have to, so, you know, so much the better. Have to, get to. Yeah, well, you know, although after an entire year of quarantining and, and isolating and sheltering in place, it's uh, what the it's getting a little old, but, yeah. uh, you know, we, 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 we make do, because we as have long to. As, as long as you have frozen meals and toilet paper. Oh, man, toilet paper. I knew I forgot something. Oh, well. well shit. There's always coffee filters. Yeah, shit, <laughs> literally. <laughs> well, uh, I want to let everybody know once again how to reach us. You can reach us. On our Facebook uh, page, which is facebook.com slash feelyourfandom. Uh, you can reach us at our Gmail, which is feelyourfandom at gmail.com. And, of course, we have our booking uh, Gmail as well. Jim, you want to throw that one out? Sure. That is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. So if you or somebody you know would like to be a guest on this fine podcast, or if you have any ideas for upcoming episodes, things you'd like us to cover, then that's the address you want to use. Just shoot us a line at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com, and we'll get that, and we'll read it, and everybody will be happy. Right, because this podcast works best if it's interactive. So uh, we want to talk to you. Uh, the whole conversation is about what fuels your fandom. So uh submit something to us talk to us be a part of the program we appreciate it so one of the fun things about season two jim was that uh i had you introduce me to several uh people that dynamic individuals who uh came onto the program and, and contributed so very much and one of my absolute favorite guests uh, from season two was a direct result of uh, an introduction from you. So I decided to bring him back today and kind of carry on the conversation, but with you involved this time, which I thought would be kind of interesting. So, Yeah, it's uh, funny. I've been lucky in my life to have uh, been, I've had a really wide variety of travels and an odd number of jobs and done some really great things. So I've met some fantastically, fantastically fascinating individuals, and uh, our guest today is one of those people. So... Well, I want to welcome back to the Few Year Fandom Podcast, Mr. John Champion. John, how you doing? Woo-hoo! Hey, thank you. I hope I can live up to that introduction. Oh, please. Uh, I really appreciate it from both of you. Yeah, well, oh, it's the, the, difference the advanced between, billing is... <laughs> right. <laughs> the difference between a regular uh, regular old podcaster and, like, professional status podcaster, so... Yeah, we get folks on here who actually know what they're doing, and uh, suddenly we have to kind of, you know, get our act together a little bit. Right. Well, it it spurs creation. It spurs innovation. It makes us be on our A game. So, yeah, for sure. Cool. But uh, John, well, how you doing no. today? I'm doing all right. I, I'm doing very well. Uh, today is is a nice full day. We did uh, a Patreon uh, live hangout for my show for Mission Log. Right on. I get to record with you guys. So we, of course, talked about Star Trek for two hours <laughs> and then uh, talk Trek with you guys. And then after this, I'm producing episodes of the Trek Files. So I'll have another couple hours of Trek ahead of me. So that's just inundated. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of, uh, I think I said it to you before, if I had been able to tell my 10 or 12 year old self like yeah you'll be an adult <laughs> and you'll talk about star trek and <laughs> that'll be your gig it makes no sense whatsoever 
but I'm grateful. Emerging technologies have created all kinds of opportunities for people who just were nerds and geeks as kids to indulge those things in the, in adulthood and and uh, yeah, and, and make, make hay out of that. That's great for real. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing an old Far Side cartoon where there was a a couple of parents uh, who had a little thought bubble above their head, and there was a kid sitting cross-legged on the floor playing a video game, and it said, uh, optimistic parents, and the the thought bubble of the parents said, uh, can you save the princess? Call this number. We need people who can play video games for a living. And it was supposed to be a joke back in the 80s that Gary Larson thought, (laughs) yeah, you know, they think their kid's playing video games all day, that'll be his job, but... You know, right. then we have video game reviewers. We have uh, YouTubers who cover video games. We have esports, and you know, it's you, uh, who, that, who knows. That's a gig. Whoever that's a knew, gig. yeah, that was yeah, going to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was laughable I mean, to think you I could was, do that for a living years and years ago. For real, yeah. I mean, when I was fourteen, it's like, okay, how, how do you be a professional fan? Well, <laughs> if you have some artistic ability, you might be able to make things that people would want to buy at a convention. And if you're really good, maybe you can submit a script for something that gets picked up. That's about it. That, yeah. that, that is the end of your options right there. But it is weird how technology has totally changed the dynamic of fandom. I, for better and for worse, yeah. um, the internet makes you know, a certain level of accessibility. Um, but then you have a, a, a pushback, which I, I think is valid in many respects. Uh, you have a pushback from the IP owners who say like, uh, okay, yes, be a fan, enjoy what we make, but you don't get to then profit off of it as well. Right. You know, there, there's, a, there's a fine line and many people have pushed that and crossed it egregiously in the last several years but in a sense it leveled the playing field and democratized access to these Mm -hmm. things but you know and the other side of the coin is yeah you have to kind of be careful about the the nature of how you do these things but thankfully uh you know you you found a way to to make it work for you in in grand fashion and and the world is a better place for it not only grand fashion but you're like roddenberry approved you're official you're the guy Uh, (laughs) well you know yeah no, go ahead, Jim. Well, I was just going to say, we're going to get into that a little bit, because uh, you yeah. mentioned to me before, and you said this kind of off mic a little bit, that um, you've mm-hmm. talked to John a couple of times. This is the first chance we've all three had to sit down, but we haven't really gotten to uh, um, John Champion's superhero origin story. So we're going to actually start <laughs> off uh, and, and kind of talk a little bit about how you know John was able to to take his, his uh, childhood fandom for all things Trek and, and convert it into this gig that he has now that uh, that, that brings the joy of Trek to, to the the ears and the minds of, of, of so many other people that share the fandom along with him. Yeah. I, you know, when I was really little, I, uh, I had an unfortunate tragic accident that, uh, I was bitten by a radioactive Mego action figure. Oh no. And, uh, yeah, that, um, that's what set me off on my path. (laughs) Wow. See, that's one thing I didn't know. Yeah. 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 You know, um, no, you know what? People have asked me when did I become a Star Trek fan, and I can't remember a time in my life that I didn't have some exposure to Star Trek. But you kind of lump all this stuff together in the mid and late 70s where Star Trek, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, uh, the Bond movies, which had taken a hard sci-fi turn. Um, Moonraker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Logan's Run, uh, Space 1999, like they were just... They were all there. Yeah. They were all in front of me. And I kind of, I knew that I had favorites. I knew that I really liked Star Trek. I really responded to the characters there. I really liked Star Wars because if you were around in 1977, that was required by law. Yes. So, 
you know that that stuff was always ram and and the bionic man or six million dollar man bionic woman um so that that was just sort of the fabric of my childhood and i i think even into my adulthood now i find that i get really obsessively interested in whatever topics hold my attention and Mm -hmm. sometimes for a long time sometimes for a lifetime others are a little you know a little more nebulous a little like uh catch as catch can like um my great uncle was a massive massive collector of toy trains and I don't just mean like, oh, somebody who has a room full of trains. I mean somebody whose entire home, four floors, was completely full of trains. And th- this is uh, how he paid for the major things in his life. And he had a collection going back to the 1880s and mm. pretty much an example of everything that, say, a company like Ives had made before they were bought out by Lionel. He just had all of it. You'd ask him about the 1930s Mickey and Minnie Mouse uh, hand car made by Lionel. He had four of them, and two of them in the box, you know. So that sort of passion for a topic, that that passion for collecting and the knowledge around the collecting, and then the the social aspect of being interested in something, uh, I think that was baked into me from a very young age. So I would go with my uncle to you know a weekend toy show train show and you just you're surrounded by all these people who are into that as well and uh, they're all sharing knowledge with each other and then i would come back home to birmingham and uh, i had my friends who were into science fiction as well and uh, some of my earliest conventions were in either birmingham or atlanta and um and i just remember picking up knowledge from these people as well i was a little younger than some of the fans that i knew at that time so for me growing up on star wars star trek galactica etc these were then the people who taught me about earlier generation science fiction lost in space voyage to the bottom of the sea uh twilight zone man from uncle uh going back even further you know the the classic sci-fi like forbidden planet Oh, you know, sure. So I, I, I just drank in all of that. And this is a very long way of saying that uh, then my, my collecting habits sort of reflected all of that as well. Um, I, I would pick up Bond and Star Trek and Star Wars in 1999. And then I, I sort of expanded into collecting props and all these other things that, to, to coin a phrase, fueled my fandom. Hey, hey. Uh, he said it. Yeah, there you go. Ding, ding, Title ding, drop, ding. boom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, the, those were always the, the, the I guess, like the, the fictional interests that I had in my life. Um, I, I would, you know, follow these storylines, follow these characters, and sometimes a little less into those. When I went to college, I dropped off that radar a little bit i missed a lot of like deep space nine and voyager in its first run but then later on i rediscovered my fandom Mm -hmm. you know went to a convention 
and just thought, oh, this is what I've been missing for the last five to ten years. Yeah. These are my people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You found and, your tribe. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that, that brought me back to it. And I've been going to conventions and had one foot in the professional world and one foot in the fandom world ever since. Well, yeah, that's one thing I wanted to bring up is that um, you and I go back a ways. And the first time we crossed mm-hmm. paths, we were both performers. And I have kind of drifted away yeah. from that in the last couple of years. And and uh, you, you still obviously do quite a bit of, of performance. Uh, well, I mean, if the podcast is, is a performance, obviously. Yeah. Um, but we, we met, uh, and this has nothing to do with track, but this is one thing I can talk about before we delve into the stuff I know nothing about. But we, we met um, working on a, a show called Fright Fest at um, yes. Six Flags Great America. And it was actually a show that was at several Six Flags parks across the country. Great America is kind of equidistant between Milwaukee and Chicago. And Milwaukee is where I am from. And uh, Chicago mm-hmm. is where you lived at the time after you kind of moved mm-hmm. up from, from Birmingham. And uh, we met as, as Creature Crew, um, dressing up in, in scary costumes and uh, yes. entertaining the shit, so to speak, yeah. out of the <laughs> patrons of the theme park. Um, yes. Which was just a really, really great experience, and I met a lot of, of tremendous people and lifelong friends um, doing that show. But um, yeah. that kind of dovetails into something that I'm not sure that you and Saint have talked about before in previous episodes. But um, mm-hmm. the, the performance aspect of it actually kind of led you to 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 get involved w- with Trek and a perf- to come very close to getting involved with Trek and a performance aspect. And that's what, something I I found fascinating that I, I also wanted to to kind of drag you into talking about, perhaps against your will. But I've always found it really interesting. Uh, yeah. So, well, I, I'll uh, I'll preface it by saying that uh, I had been performing on and off and working as an actor on and off since I was very little. I, I was about six. And, and tremendous ad. I'll just I'll, I'll throw that in there just because I know you you're not one to tweet your own horn, but I'll tweet it all day. You, you were always always a tremendous performer and still are to this day. Oh, I, I really appreciate that. It's something that I don't get to. I don't get to flex that muscle a lot now. But but you honestly, you hit the nail on the head. You know, podcasting is a performance type, yeah. and it definitely feeds that need that I have. Being yeah. able to have a conversation, uh, being able to interact with an audience on some level. Uh, obviously, not while they are listening, but. I know that people are listening to it. I know that they'll write back to me uh, when we do a live show like we did this morning or our live Monday night shows. Um, that definitely scratches that itch that sure. I have. Uh, although I'll be very glad to have an opportunity to get on a stage at some point again in my life. Once know. COVID uh, screws off back to hell where I came from and, and we can I return know, right? to some sense yeah. of normalcy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, but I, I had grown up doing that. And then when I went to college in New York, I stopped because I was doing college things and I, I was doing other work. And then sure. I moved to Chicago, great theater town, and I started doing that again. I went through Second City and I started a theater company there. And along this time, I go to Fright Fest and, yeah. uh, and I get to have just a great time there. And performing there was awesome. And you go, okay, I'm doing this show, uh, you know, once every five to 15 minutes for an audience of like 400 people, <laughs> you know? So you add it all up, you go, wow, okay, at the end of the season, I performed for tens of thousands of people. Yeah. That is a <laughs> great feeling. Yeah, we had slightly so, different gigs. I was a costume creature that kind of just roamed and did like improv, you know, street uh, yeah. guerrilla theater. And you were yeah. a part of the train show. So you had regularly scheduled scripted performances, which, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. two, kind of two sides of the same coin within that that setting. But um, you're, you're yeah. 
gig was a lot harder because I could just run around like a. I played a troll, so I could just. I looked like an orc from uh, from Lord of the Rings, so I could just scratch myself, belch, smell bad, and be rude, and I was a successful character. You actually had to have talent. You got to be you on stage. You just got (laughs) to be you. You had to go out there and actually perform and act and follow a script and do like a show. So that was yeah. I I just all I had to do was was drop my. my, the other two have the two thirds of my psyche. Just let my id run around and be rude all the time. <laughs> you know. Well, they, they, it's a challenge. Look, no matter what you're doing at Fright Fest, it is a challenging show because it's long hours. Yeah. Unpredictable weather, unpredictable audiences. I mean, and an incidental I, audience because they came there for kind of on some level. To, well, yeah. I, oh, I did have some, one guy said when I was working in the Acropolis one year, the City of the Dead. Um, for those <laughs> that haven't been there. You know, uh, I think it was when Skunk was drinking some used motor oil or eating French fries out of a uh, trash can, um, and yeah. this guy said, "You know, the roller coasters are here all year. I come for this shit. This is what I come to yeah. see in October." Yeah. Um, so you right. had an audience, but it's kind of an incidental. It was a, a theme, a theme park audience. It was kind of just strolling by or riding the train, yeah. and and you kind of had to bring the show right into their face in certain instances, and and that's yeah. that was. So it is a very different kind of show. You're absolutely right. It is. It's a weird kind of audience, and I don't want to go too far down this uh, road, but I've always felt, I think especially since doing Fright Fest, I have an affinity for sort of the unsung heroes of the acting world. And you look at theme park performers, whether they're musicians, singers, street characters, whatever, they have to be good. I, I think there there's a certain audience who sort of looks down on that. Well, they're not on TV. They're not on a Broadway stage. But those people have to be good. You can see a cheesy show at a theme park. Um, and believe me, I've seen many cheesy shows at a theme <laughs> oh, park. Oh, absolutely. But, but those performers have to be good. And they have to be adaptable. And um, Well, because dealing with it, a live audience like that is going to be something that is just so unpredictable on a day-to-day basis. And, right. Yeah. Like and working, working 10-hour days. Working 10-hour days and doing a show like John said, every 15 minutes, you're doing 40 shows a day. Right. Yeah. And then you look yeah. at, the, at the guys that uh, have to be in character at like Disney World or Disneyland or the Disney Parks. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen a lot of YouTube videos of them and and the people at Universal and all these characters that are in character all day walking around the park, and interacting with with, I think one of the harshest critics, children. Yeah, uh, because yeah, right. Children yeah. aren't going to be afraid to tell you if you're if oh you look like Gaston oh well you suck you sound bad. What was it? Yeah. W C Field just said never work with animals or children. Yeah, right. But, yes, exactly. Theme, theme park has children. It's crawling with kids. You're right. Some I, truth to that, but I yeah. love watching those videos too because uh, yeah. you get to see like I think uh, one of the last ones I watched was this guy who was acting as Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, and yeah. you know, Gaston, of course, is just this repugnant character and just <laughs> like no redeeming qualities whatsoever, dripping just with hubris, boastful, oh, and, yes. yeah, and and this little girl, this like ten year old little girl, just walks up to him and just shuts him down and it was fantastic <laughs> i'm gonna have to find the link for that and send you guys that one but she just he just like gets in her face and he's all puffed chest out and bravado and all yeah. that and she just wasn't having it that day or ever and took him to it and it was it's amazing to watch it's fun to see I, I love watching stuff. that kind of stuff but 
Oh no! I say that that kind of performance really can fine tune your improv skills, and, and oh I feel yeah, like that's something I've gotten rusty at. But I really respect the people who are good at it. Well, you also know uh, A.E. Shapira, who uh, worked at the Renaissance Fair for many years, and she kind of wrote the book on, on street performance. And I, I bought a copy and yeah. I read it, not because just because she's my friend and I adore her, but because uh, she <laughs> kind of if you want to look at like improv, street improv, and, and guerrilla theater on the streets of a uh, of a theme park yeah. type event, she was about the best of the best. She played Jane the Fool, who was the the Queen's head jester. The Bristol Renaissance Fair for many many years, oh, and, right. and so yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great book. So from train shows in Birmingham to college in New York to uh, heading to Chicago to kind of hone your theater chops, and then what was the impetus that pushed you from when we worked together in Chicago out west to LA to uh, to, to ascend to the position where you are now? Sure. Yeah. So, well, a couple of things, and I'll give you a tiny little bit of background there as well. That uh, when I was working as an actor when I was younger and I was doing non-professional things you know you you do a a local like a community theater play or whatever but I was picking up some professional gigs here and there as well a little tv thing or a little commercial thing so those were coming along but but never to the scale of like oh I'm gonna you know quit school and go get an agent and go work on the you know series regular or something never anything like that Uh, But I did audition for Star Trek The Next Generation, which uh, was a great moment and kind of blew my mind that then 30 years later, I found a document with my name on it that made its (laughs) way to Gene Roddenberry's desk. It was one of the things that I do at Roddenberry is, you know, pick through the archives and find documents to talk about. And then that just... That was a really strange moment to uh, <laughs> to hold something in my hand. Because, look, you audition for something and then you don't get it. And you don't hear about not getting it. Yeah, you, you just know, don't you, you hear it, if yeah. you got the Yeah, yeah, right. you hear if you got the gig or you hear if you got a callback. Uh, but there's never any follow-up about not getting something. But here was something in black and white that just sort of reinforced, like, yeah, that actually happened. And, and you're... You were somewhere in the running, you know. I've been, I've been so kicking that, around this universe for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So that that, that was a, a nice little find. Uh, but then, yeah, I went to New York, went to Chicago. And when I was in Chicago, I was working. I, I had co-developed uh, a short web series and TV series. One was called Biff Bam Pow. That was uh, uh, AT&T had picked it up and on networks. And it was like a... It was like a nerd primer. Like, here's a seven-minute show that's everything you need to know about Iron Man, everything you need to know about the Hulk, whatever. And then I was doing DVD Geeks, which is a DVD review show, and it took on a few different forms. It was a podcast. It was a half-hour show that was on satellite, and it was a short show that was picked up on, like, uh, you know, these little short format for a while there in the mid-2000s. Um, like uh, transit TV, you oh, get sure. on a yeah. train or a bus, and they, and they show you a little three minute clip. You know, so I was producing stuff like that. Nice. And since this sort of nerddom was always in my purview, an opportunity came up. This was in 2006 to go shoot. We we would go film wherever we could that we could just bank a lot of material to slip into these shows. And 2006 was the 40th anniversary of Star Trek. There was a big convention coming up in Vegas. And we kind of justified it to say, okay, look, we can shoot DVD review material here because there's the Star Trek animated series. The the Star Trek DVD releases are kind of evergreen anyway. Plus, we can get some interviews and footage to drop into Biff Bam Pow. Let's just go shoot a ton of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So we did, and that connected us to the convention organizers, which connected us to Roddenberry, to Rod Roddenberry. And then coming back to Chicago, I ended up doing some little odd, like, editing and we just kind of stayed in touch and then uh, the later conventions ended up collaborating a bit more on what video production we would do because uh, they were banking a lot of interview material so that started the relationship and uh, Rod and I just found ourselves kind of hanging out some time and realizing we had a lot in common and uh, wanted to express the same things about Star Trek so Fast forward many years after that, that expression turned into a couple of things. He had been working on a documentary about his father, about the personal side of his father, what made him tick. But the next step then was to figure out what made Star Trek tick. So he, he was sort of in a little bit of a discovery phase. Uh, what, what would this be? Is it a book? Is it a documentary? Is mm -hmm. it a blog? Maybe it's a podcast. Then the podcast turned into, okay, what is the format and what is the goal? Well, for Rod, since he was a little, little boy, fans would come up and, and say, your father's show changed my life. Okay, what does that mean? Right. How did it change your life? Uh, what, what, what are you seeing in this that maybe I'm not or that somebody else is seeing differently? So that became the, uh, the reason for Mission Log. Mission Log was this way for Rod, essentially, to look at Star Trek, study it, and have people talk about it. Right, because he, he didn't want he to was, do it. He was so close to it, being, uh, yeah, being you know Gene Roddenberry's kid and everything. That it's a family business, he, right? And, it is. And so yeah. it's hard to be yeah. objective about it. It's hard to understand maybe necessarily uh, the the passion behind certain episodes, good or bad. And, and right. whatnot, and and so I mean, it almost makes a uh, hundred percent logical sense for him to seek that kind of outside, uh, not necessarily validation. Validation might be the wrong word here, but perspective, uh, I guess. Perspective, yeah, to, to yeah. kind of get that yeah. that fan perspective of this thing that uh, that his father created and the legacy and the and the the, the impact that his father had on the uh, the mainstream pop culture and and. I, I, that's he and, a great way to look at Mission Log, I think. He and I have had that conversation a few times where, you know, privately he'll express some sort of, you know, concern or question or whatever about what's happening in Star Trek now. Mm -hmm. and, and by now, I just mean within the last few years. And I'll sort of have to remind him and say, like, but, but your perspective is unique to anybody else's in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your perspective is specifically when you say Gene's vision, and I, I kind of hate that phrase because it almost takes on this this religious Mythical, connotation. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like we have to do the one true Star Trek. Uh, I, uh, but I'm like, I, you know, I get it though because it's your name and it's your father. And you have a certain idea in your head of what that means. But Star Trek writ large, that, that is this entirely other big tent that encompasses all these other things. Right. So, But carrying that name, is, I mean, on your driver's license, on mm. your birth certificate, there's this almost, uh, not an obligation, that sounds negative, but almost a, a responsibility to carry on that legacy in some form. Yeah. 
Oh, totally. I imagine yeah, uh, it, I imagine yeah. Christopher Tolkien felt kind of the same thing as well with uh, the Lord of the Rings books, and I know he continued uh, writing and and further developing things that his father had done as well. Um, mm-hmm. But that's what I, I love so much about the the, um, the the whole impetus behind Mission Log to begin with is, is people coming up to you and saying people coming up to, to Rod and saying you know your mm-hmm. dad's show changed my life and you and the both of you wanted to dig into that and say well what what makes that special because I mean you know uh, um, Gene is I mean I'm not I don't not going to speak for him but you know he's one of those people mm-hmm. that that had such a utopian vision for the future and here's the way I where I hope things are going to go and so. If people look at Star Trek as just being entertainment, which it is excellent entertainment, you know, it's, it serves sure. incredibly yeah. well in that capacity. But yeah. if if they're not looking at it in the in the context of what it was that that Gene and his successors were and are trying to get across in terms of like, well, if we're going to present an, an image and a, and a take on the future, then we're going to present a take of the future that we want. And so there's there's going to be a sort yeah. of a an almost gestalt thing that has to go into it where people look at where we are look at where they hope we're going to go and then sort of fill in the blanks of how it is we got there. So the idea of looking at individual Trek episodes of all the different disparate series that have been produced by that you know powerhouse umbrella of a production company and, mm-hmm. and understanding and examining what it is about them that's resonant and relevant with with socio with, with, with uh, socio, sociological theory and figuring out how yeah. what what particular issue or um, concept was was the root of of the idea for this episode how was it addressed in context and how is it relevant to not only its own zeitgeist but also going forward into you know hopefully at some point creating the utopian future that was originally envisioned by of course gene's vision you know Um, (laughs) right well and i think what's critically important about that is that those things were done by multiple people Mm -hmm. uh over time so it, it, it's not just one person with one specific vision, that it is a collaborative thing. And the other important part that is critical is that it changes over time, too. Yeah. You know, Gene has been gone for, well, as of 2021, he's been gone for 30 years. There's wow. more Star Trek that has pr- been produced without Gene Roddenberry than has been produced with Gene Roddenberry. That, the majority that, of Star Trek has been produced without him. That's really, yeah. uh, that's difficult to wrap my mind around, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he passed away in 91. Next Gen was on the air, but there was no DS9 Voyager Enterprise. There were no J.J. Abrams films. There was no CBS All Access. There was none of that. And even... Even by 91, he was less of a creative force in Star Trek. He, he had a big say in the very first part of Next Gen, but then as his health declined, he had less and less to do with it. And with the movies, you know, the first movie was a, a great deal under his tutelage, uh, but the later movies, not so much. You know, from Star Trek II forward, he was a consulting producer which is a nice way of saying here's a paycheck don't bother us <laughs> but do you think that the consistency of the thematics behind the the idea of star trek as being we're going to present the utopian future and we're going to deal with with issues and things that are facing us now and use those to inform the way that we depict things the way we hope they're going to be um how clear the the intention was behind the original series and 
the, the people that have kind of come after Gene and walked in his footsteps have been able to carry that on so successfully. How, how much of that do you think is, is, is based on how clear and how successful he was in initially getting across, hey, we're going to deal with issues. This isn't just going to be like a, uh, a Monster of the Week you know, space opera. We're actually going to talk about things like racism and sexuality and all of these things that came to sort of define the underpinnings of, of what the series has meant to all these people. How, how much right. of that kind of finds its roots in, in, in the incredibly early concepts that he established and, and, and has carried forward by the people that have taken over the, the mantle from him? So it's interesting. I, I, I think that in the earliest, earliest, uh, like the very first draft of what is Star Trek, and that, that's literally the name of the document from yeah. like 1964, what is Star Trek? Um, the, the key thing for Gene was realism. How, how do we get across realism in this world? The, so we're not doing the, the cheesy, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, no disrespect to them, but that was a, a style and an adventure style, a to- storytelling style that had been the same since the 1930s. And the serialized really, narrative kind of pulpy yeah, yeah, kind of just, exploitive. Yeah, wasn't considered adult fare, wasn't considered really thoughtful, deep science fiction like you were getting in you know novels and and a little other different uh different venues so that was first and foremost and i think you can only tell the realistic science fiction story if you've got buy-in for the characters if you've got buy-in for the world that they're in you can make it fantastical but there has to be something that grounds you there that leads you then to designing a future that says okay well First of all, we have to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, so so we implicitly, implicitly we have to agree that we have gotten beyond the things that hold us back now in order to get us two or three hundred years in the future where we have achieved great things like building starships to take us out there to explore. And we only get there when we figure out that we can work together, that we can overcome our petty, petty problems, and that we can... Uh, uh, collaboratively look at the the awe and wonder of the universe so it's sort of like just by saying this is us and and very no disrespect to star wars star wars at all but it's a very clear difference to say star wars is a long time ago in a galaxy far far away they look human but they're not us We, we we find maybe some common ground but but they're not us star trek is specifically saying all the things that you're seeing NASA do now in the early 1960s, this is us. It's aspirational this that is, way. Yeah, yeah. This is us in a few hundred years. Yeah. We just have to do it right. Right. So that, This is where that we can aspir- go if we don't step in it too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if we do it right, we get to reap the, the rewards, the benefits of this kind of achievement. Uh, so I... I even if he hadn't sat down and said, okay, this is a future without racism, without bigotry, without uh, economic concern, without you know, starvation and, and religious strife that breaks us apart, even if he hadn't sat down and written that out, it would have been implied as part of the future anyway. Yeah. Because you're saying, here's how we... Here's how we got here. Now, you fast forward 20 years. You get to 1986 when they're developing Next Generation. 
And I think Gene had had this time between the cancellation of the original series and then rebooting Star Trek in the late 70s for the first movies where he got to look reflectively at Star Trek and he got to hear what people were saying about it. That's when all that stuff really got codified. And, you know, I, I think first and foremost for any type of TV show, any type of entertainment product, you have to have characters that people will identify with and want to see week after week. You have to have stories that are engaging and fun and will fire your imagination. Um, but once we've accomplished that, <laughs> what, is the, what is the message that we're getting across to the audience? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think there's a combination of those techniques for telling a story. You could either start out by saying, gosh, I really want to cover something that's important to me or important to the social conversation happening right now, uh, sexual rights, uh, you know, racial rights, uh, whatever that may be. Let's contrive a story to work around those themes. Or you might also say, Here's where our characters have come from. Here's where they're heading. What if this thing happens to this character? Does that lead me into a story where I can make a point about this other big topic? Both of those are valid. You can tell when that approach works and when it doesn't work, uh, <laughs> especially in a property like Star Trek where you've got 800 hours plus of content. But even making uh, the attempt is in some yeah. ways a victory. Especially when nobody it, it, else is talking about it in entertainment. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely, it is. I know. You know? I know. And, Iris and, Stephen Bear touched mm -hmm. on that a little bit with uh, uh, his documentary "What We Leave Behind." Yeah, uh, yeah. Where he talked about they were going down the list of uh, the things that Star Trek did accomplish and the things that Star Trek wanted mm -hmm. to accomplish, and one of the things that uh, they get a lot of, uh, not necessarily negativity about, but uh, they were uh, as far as uh, uh, talking about. Uh, LGBTQ rights as uh, revolves around uh, particularly the character of Jezia Dax and yeah. uh, they kind of mention it in the documentaries like yeah we shouldn't get credit for that we didn't go far enough we didn't take it yeah. to its yeah. logical extent so uh, maybe we get credit for the attempt but we shouldn't because well, there, there is a fine line in so many things yeah. of uh, like you, you we're going to talk about discovery in a little bit um, and, and the sort mm -hmm. of relationships that happen on that show but there's there's a fine line between we're going to introduce this character or this concept in a way that makes sense that kind of integrates it seamlessly with this universe and, and indicates that we think it shouldn't be a big deal like is the way we think things should be versus we're going to be overt enough about this to make sure that the message gets across to people in case they're missing what we're trying to go for. Right, right. And, and that is a huge challenge. And, and I think Dax is a great example of that where you have this fantastic character. Like you can go anywhere with this character where uh, there's the duality of the, the body and the, the, the symbiont, the, the sort of additional mind that is a part of this person. Uh, with uh, th this huge range of experiences and desires and memories. Um, doing a show like they did with uh, Dax being reconnected with the former lover, it, it's just that they happen to both be women now. Like, that is a an obvious but a brilliant place to go with that character. It's a great way to come now, at it sideways and, and introduce the concept without really... Um, and and yep. kind of gently ease people into it that might people that might uh, put up a resistance to the idea. Yeah, totally. 
Totally. Um, and, and I think that they should give themselves a bit of credit for that and uh, realize that they're doing the Star Trek version of it. Again, the safe for mid-90s TV version of it. But you're, you're doing the Star Trek version of this, which says, let's not just take a same-sex couple and put them in front of you just for the sake of putting them in front of you. Let's actually maybe try to figure out what is the nature here of attraction? What is the nature here of love? How will other people react to this? And let's just explore that for a little while. I wish they'd come back to it. I wish they had done more with it. Um, but I'll certainly give them an A for effort on what they did for that episode. And, and I realize uh, also talking about uh, with Next Gen, uh, I know I had talked to you recently about uh, as I was going through my mission log listening and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of hours put into listening to the next gen episodes you guys had gotten you and ken had gotten to talking about uh the episode the outcast yes and uh i know i had texted you after i got done listening to you guys break that down because uh that was such a I'm trying to think about how to phrase this because uh mm -hmm. i want to be delicate with it but uh <laughs> um, that was the episode in which Riker. Uh, had fallen in love with uh, androgynous uh, character who yeah. at the point in the show had decided to uh, present female. Right. Um, and so they played around with uh, I, I think they kind of tiptoed through some trans issues and they tiptoed through some uh, uh, asexual issues and mm -hmm. uh, it was just interesting to see things like that crop up and then like you said with the thing with Jadzia where they uh, have this character where they have so much free real estate to kind of explore and delve into uh, other issues but maybe they for whatever reason or another the networks wouldn't allow it or they, they weren't able to get too uh, deep into it because of the uh, I don't know if it's uh, sensitivities of the the network or the standards uh, and practices standards and practices yeah and, and well, having to tiptoe around what they could keep on air yeah I, I well here, here's the good news about star trek since the mid 80s since um next gen went on the air is that they were first run syndication so they didn't have to answer to a particular standards board um However, there is a bit of self-censorship involved there because they realize, okay, this could be airing at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in Alabama or it could be running at 8 o'clock at night in New York. We're, we really don't know and we're casting a very wide net to stay on the air. Some local station could pull us off just because, for whatever reason, they don't like the content of what we're doing. Right. And and for that, you know, yes, Star Trek can get preachy at times, and I think most of the time when it does, it, it's well placed. It's uh, it's from a point of view that I respect. <laughs> so, and the intentions so are I'm pure, if nothing else. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm fine with that. Um, but there is a little bit of concern there, just going like okay, if we push it this far, then that message may never get heard by the people who need to hear it. So uh, th this was a challenging and difficult thing where going back to the 80s, again, going back to before Next Gen was on the air, somebody had posed it to Gene at a convention saying, 
when are we going to get a gay character on Star Trek? And he said, yeah, it's time. So he goes back to the rest of the producers on Next Gen, like Bob Justman and Maury Hurley and uh, DC Fontana and David Gerald were writing on the show at that point. We need to do this. Okay, well, it's 1986. How are we going to do this? Right. How are we going to address this in a way that, yeah. that it's clear what we're going for, but also kid glove it enough that you know WKPX yeah. in in, uh, in in Poughkeepsie is not going to pull us off yeah. the air because they're worried that we're going to corrupt the children because they have a backward and idea of what what it is we're trying to to convey in this. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and you know they they may have overthought it, and you can say could have, would have, should have. Uh, but, you know, they, they took that baby step by doing an episode like The Outcast. I, I think that final speech, the, uh, uh, Soren is her name, has, which sort of uh, parallels Shylock uh, from Shakespeare. Basically, if you prick us, do we not bleed? That, that mm-hmm. is what the audience needed to hear. And if they put two and two together and realized, like, oh, wait, we're talking about gay people just being people <laughs> we're talking about what people an idea of i know right of, of any uh, sexual orientation uh being just like the rest of us then great that's valuable uh had they taken the step of introducing a regular gay character on the show well the debate internally was how do we depict that without either making it look like tokenism or stereotype or yeah, or making it look like a stereotype. Yeah. and Or we're doing this you know, just yeah. for the sake of having a gay character versus this actually makes narrative sense within the story we're trying to get across. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and, and I can understand that that was a very different conversation in 1986 than it was in 2016 trying to develop what the cast will look like for Discovery. So... Well, yeah. that's a very clever jumping off point, and I realize I have not been adhering to my time clock as well as I should be. So we're <laughs> going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, that's exactly where I want to pick up. I want to uh, start talking about uh, Trek now, Trek as it sits now. And uh, so stick around, come right back. We'll be uh, talking about Trek. Welcome back, everybody. So now we were talking before the break about um, the difficulties uh, and challenges in bringing uh, uh, messages and of, of inclusion and, and things like of that nature into a show that airs on uh, on public television on the public airwaves that may uh, be subject and open to more scrutiny and how they're able to do that without alienating large parts of their audience. Um, I think that was a natural segue to this conversation. Now, Star Trek, as of several years ago, I want to say it was 2018, uh, was when CBS All Access was created. Uh, uh, I think Discovery premiered in late 2017. Was it 17? Okay. If I'm not mistaken, but I could be totally wrong. So. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. <laughs> I did absolutely no research on this, so I'm going to defer to you as the expert. But, okay. Um, 
Well, that's your first mistake. <laughs> first of many, I'm sure. But uh, I think what that did as far as, as uh, Star Trek is concerned is it, is it kind of took the out of the hands of uh, Joe Sixpack on the corner who just might stumble across an episode and 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 get offended to it brings it to more of a, a niche marketplace because cbs all access is of course a pay service it's a pay system you have to uh subscribe to mm-hmm. be a part of it you have to subscribe you have to actively seek it out let's say and so yeah. that uh gave them a certain amount of freedom i want to say on uh shows like star trek to kind of approach the topics that they wanted to approach incorporate the messages that they wanted to incorporate uh really with i don't want to say no oversight but certainly less uh direct meddling by you know fox or any affiliate stations or anything like that what do you think about that if you have a killer app that's going to sell you a platform then you have the freedom to if your audience is seeking you out actively instead of picking you up passively then you have an opportunity if they're paying for it uh, to, to have yeah. it be kind of like pay cable and present things that are, yeah, like a lot less subject to the scrutiny of, of a standards and practices board. So what we're looking at is the long tail in action. Um, you, you don't need a Star Wars theatrical release where you have to make $200 million in the opening weekend to have uh, any level of success. What you need is a couple of million people who will subscribe to your platform for six months and then maybe they drop off but then maybe they come back or those get replaced by a few more and you're building that over a few years uh so the the economics of the audience and the uh the level of success the bar we're setting for success is something totally different and there was a lot of bitching and moaning when cbs all access launched uh, a few years ago uh, there was a lot less when Disney Plus launched, and I think for a few reasons. One was that the the amount of content they had was a lot more, but the other reason was it was a year or two later. We're all doing a lot more streaming anyway. We understand the model of you pony up for a month and then you see if you're going to stick around for another month and then another month until you forget about that charge on your credit card. Already yeah. done, sir. Um, Already done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, look back at TV shows, science fiction, big budget, primetime network shows, and I challenge anybody to find since well since the twilight zone but twilight zone wasn't always science fiction twilight zone was sort of its own animal find me a successful science fiction network tv show that made it more than two seasons and you know battlestar galactica was the closest we had to that um they made it one season what they came back with for the second season was awful But that first season, they were trying to do big budget, theatrical quality, epic sci-fi for the home viewer um, in the wake of Star Wars and the wake, you know, and they had numbers that if you had those numbers now on a network, it, it would be the biggest success story ever. But even back then, when there were only three networks, it couldn't sustain it because the cost of production 
versus what you're getting back in advertising versus marketing, et cetera, simply couldn't sustain it. Like even now you've got something like the Orville, which is, uh, you know, obviously very track inspired Mm -hmm. and I I happen to love it. And it's, uh, it's in its second season, midway through its second season, it got dumped by, by Fox and then picked up by Hulu, at which point they immediately ran into production problems because of COVID and everything else. And they've had a very troubled third season. Um, But uh, Seth MacFarlane has announced this will be the last season, which kind of breaks my heart. But even that is, is two. Oh, yeah, that's well, he, uh, he got picked up by Hulu, and, and because of the production delays and the issues they've had trying to crank out that second season, or the yeah, third season, yeah. um, you know, he said uh, he's just kind of moved on from it, which is really sad to me because it's, you know, it's oh. such a, that could be another episode unto itself. It's such a great yeah, show, totally. and it takes, it's so many, people thought it was just going to be, oh, it's going to be Trek with Dick jokes. Yeah, Trek with Dick jokes. But, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it turned out to be such a, a, a better thing than that. Because he really yeah. did take so many of his cues from Trek. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, apart from, like, something like Babylon 5, which is really a heavily niche show, or something that was, like, yeah. sci-fi adjacent, like a Quantum Leap, was, you know, th- yeah. it's really difficult to sell sci-fi to a, a primetime mainstream audience. Yeah. Right. Yeah, on, on a network. And uh, the, because the, the stakes are so high... Uh, and the expectations are so high that they they simply can't sustain it. So you take, like, Next Gen, 1987, first-run syndication, boom, all that pressure is gone. Yeah. So then you're, you're taking your ad revenues based on all these other little affiliates that are buying up your show, airing it, and they're running it whenever they want, however mm-hmm. they see fit. It's not dictated by, you know, ABC 7 o'clock on a Sunday night. So you don't have to worry about that. You get to a show like Discovery, and instead of, you know, if you put a show that costs that much with that high expectation on CBS, CBS of all networks, on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday night, it would be off the air in three weeks. It would be gone after a few episodes. But you move it to a paid platform like CBS All Access, it finds its audience. It doesn't have to be a huge audience. It just has to be the right audience. Right who will pay to come back the next month. And that's why that show is now going into its fourth season and has spawned Picard and has spawned Lower Decks and you got Strange New Worlds coming, you know. Because again, CBS can look at it and go, hey, for a streaming platform, a couple million here, a couple million there, that is success for this show. Absolutely. But if it were on, yeah, but if it were on network, uh, the the audience numbers simply wouldn't match up. Well, there's a definite to, line to be drawn between um, the the era of the DVR, like I'd say, like late '90s, early 2000s, mm. kind of changing appointment television like you you know must see TV like on a Thursday night on NBC, taking it out of the realm of you have to be make sure that you structure your life so that you're you either learn how to program a VCR or you, you got to structure your life so that your ass is in front of the TV at 7.30 right. p.m. on Friday or Thursday or whenever right. they've decided to air your show and then suddenly yeah. TV becomes a, a thing that you can consume in a, a number of different media channels that, that you can you can go and get it whenever you want it as opposed to having to, to create um, appointment television and I think that sort of thing really helped niche audiences, particularly sci-fi and particularly Trek, if you want to draw a really, uh, you know, a daisy chain of, of, of events that kind of connected things to where we came from to where we are now that makes this sort of thing really viable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think when it comes to Trek specifically, and, and now that we've kind of figured out the audience economics of it, I, I think what's interesting is sort of going back to your original premise here, Kevin, is that you know, now we look at what are the morals, meanings, messages, to use the mission log phrase, <laughs> mm-hmm. and how are they reaching the audience? Right. Well, 
Now you've got a much smaller audience, a dedicated audience, but a smaller audience. And whether it's 3 million people or 30 million people, your message isn't designed necessarily to reach the extremes on either end. And in any social issue, political issue, debate, whatever, you're not going after the people who have the most extreme opposite opinion as yours. You're not going to change those opinions. They're not going to open those minds. Right. Where there's a little narrow swath in the middle that might be receptive to your message. And those are the ones that you're really engaging in that conversation. So I think back to Star Trek, the original series, uh, 1968, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. That's the one for people who don't know, half black on one side, half white on the other side. And it's Frank Gorshin and uh, other actors whose name is escaping me, chasing each other, ready to kill each other because one is the wrong color on the other side. Right Now, it, to us now, it is the most obvious, blatant, ham-fisted way to address racial politics and racism that you could ever conceive. I think there's a certain brilliance to that, but... It's, <laughs> that's, it's like the that, Captain that's Kirk a, double punch, you know, of... Yeah, right, 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 right. There. Yeah. But here's the thing. So that show airing in 1967, 68, uh, that was going to get letters from people who felt very strongly against its message. And for the people who are already sold on the message, they probably felt like it was ham-fisted and obvious, so it just becomes kind of cheesy. What's this cheesy sci-fi show doing? But there's that, again, that narrow range in the middle. And we heard from one of those people who I, I met years ago, like right when we started Mission Log, she was like, I don't know, 12 years old, living in rural Mississippi when this show aired for the first time. And that's what clued her in to think, you know, maybe I don't understand that the people around me are quote unquote racist, but at least I'm understanding that there is a different way of looking at this type of issue. There, there is something now that, that I'm seeing that is different from the message that's being reinforced by the people around me. Maybe I can be different. Well, that maybe really is I a classic example different. of if this reaches mm -hmm. one person, you know, then yeah, it's, truly. It's, it's, it's achieved truly. its goal and it's made a difference. And, you know, yeah. there, there are a lot of those moments, if you, if, you know, if you really want to, and, and we've, we've touched on this quite a bit, but there's a lot of that, whether you're talking about, um, you know, Plato's stepchildren or you're talking about the outcast, mm -hmm. there are those moments that are just kind of sprinkled throughout Trek where you, you watch a couple of episodes in a row and it's a monster of the week kind of thing, or, you know, we're, we're going to boldly go to a different society and kind of bring our ideals to them. And then suddenly you have those moments like the Kirk Uhura kiss, or you have those moments like, you know, Riker, right. you know, touching on trans issues, falling in love with with a, an androgynous creature and all that right. kind of and then up through like discovery now where you've got a gay couple and it is the least interesting thing about them um <laughs> right. you know and that's kind of where i, where yes. I had yes. always kind of hoped to get in entertainment is that you've got you know it, 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 it they're not presented as as tokens they're not presented as hey guess what these guys are gay and we're making a big fucking fat deal about it it's just yeah, yeah. these are some gay characters and th the fact that they're gay has nothing to do with anything but we're going to make sure and throw that in there just so that we can again present that utopian ideal of the future of this is the most yeah. normal thing to this particular society right. everybody matters not, yeah. everybody's represented yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. we're we're not we're just mm -hmm. not going to make a big deal out of it see and can yeah. i just take a real quick second to throw a shout out to jim for name dropping Plato's stepchildren that was fantastic 
Well, you know, like I said earlier on, I'm I'm not like as well versed in Trek, but anybody who is a carbon-based life form who lives in this version of the timeline uh, understands that 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 Trek has done so many things that have had they've had so many landmark moments. So you know those those moments stand out, and those episodes are important. Even Even if you know next to nothing, you still have to have a certain base level of. Here, here's here's what we're gonna. This, this is what we talk about when we talk about this kind of thing, right? Yeah. And and we were talking earlier, John, about uh, how they were trying to use Jedzia Dax as maybe kind of a stand-in for the Trill. Now, with uh, mm-hmm. our stand-in for LGBTQ with the Trill, mm-hmm. we kind of have that now to its logical extent. With uh, in in Star Trek Discovery season three, they brought in a character named uh, Adira, and Adira. Yeah. Uh, is essentially a human uh, who was joined with a Trill symbiont, which no one thought could have happened. I mean, they did toy around with it a little bit in uh, Next Gen, but this is the first real time they've attempted to do the uh, symbiotic uh, joining, uh, right. where where the human can have access to the symbiont's memories. And we find out, now spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched Season 3 yet, It's it's been a while, <laughs> we're past the spoiler moratorium. But... Uh, uh, Adira ended up inheriting the uh, symbiont from their uh, dying at the time uh, boyfriend, uh, who is right. played by uh, Blue de Blasio. Was that was that his name? Mm-hmm. Okay, or is no Ian? Yeah, Blue is. I, I think that's. I got I've got the names all. I, I'm gonna mess it up, but the, the character is Gray. Character is Gray. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, and and so Gray is uh, a Trill, uh, who is uh, transgender, uh, female to male, I believe, uh, uses male pronouns, yeah. and uh, in a relationship with uh, Adira, the human, who uses they them pronouns. Uh, they never really make much of uh, a big deal about it. Again, same as, as we've been talking about, it just happens to be a facet of the character. It is not the part of their character, the only uh, character development for them. Uh, and in fact, they actually do manage to fire off a couple of snarky remarks about it. Um, we talk about not our, our basing messages on, uh, on uh, trying to educate people uh, with Star Trek. And uh, they had a, a moment, just a, and it was such an offhand moment with uh, Paul Stamets, uh, one mm-hmm. of the lead engineers in on Discovery, uh, using the wrong pronouns for Adira, and right. it was just kind of a little, a quick adjustment, and Stamets changed his his uh, pronouns for them. Oh, whoops! Sorry and, about that. Uh, and that was it. <laughs> right. And that was yeah. it. There was no, oh my God, well, you're this or you're that or how can you be this? It wasn't a life <clears> lesson. <throat> it was just an absolute display of, oh, okay. Gentle societal course correction. And then right, moving right. on. And, and it, it really, re- it reminded me of the moment in The Outcast where Riker and Soren are, they first have a moment alone and they're, they're working on the shuttlecraft and Riker this being his first experience with an androgynous person. This is like, wait, help me. I, I, I don't know what to call you. I'm not exactly sure how to... And it's just this really sweet and really genuine moment mm-hmm. of just saying, help me to be better toward you. And I really hope that a scene like this one in Discovery, I hope it feels really dated 20 years from now. Right. I hope it feels really quaint 
down the road. Oh, that's cheesy. Oh, look at what um, sweet summer children we were, getting all hung up about gender and how we address each other. I know, yeah. I know. I had right. that exact type of moment with uh, one of my favorite cashier at my local Safeway. Uh, always pleasant, always super happy, always, you know, eager to help and and, and, and really cool. And I'm, I've been working in and out of uh, the Safeway establishment for a lot of years, so I would always see... Uh, see them when I would when I would grocery shop. I'd see them when I work. So I mean, we had kind of a, a good rapport <coughs> back and forth, and and mm-hmm. I just so happened to notice at one point that uh, their name tag name tag had changed, and, mm. and so I asked them. I I said, "Hey, I noticed you, your name tag's different," and sh- and they're just like, "This is you know my this is my name. I this is my chosen mm. name. This is what I want to go by," and I'm like, "Oh." Okay, well, what's your what's your pronouns too? While we're talking about it, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh my God, they them." Thank you for asking, and nothing else was said about it. I got a high five. They walk on about <laughs> their business, and it's just the way it is. And 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 to kind of see yeah. that in my media as well is so gratifying because it's like like you said, one day I hope to see it as being quaint and just kind of like ah whatever. I can't believe we yeah. had to have these discussions. I can't believe this is something that had to be said. But uh, again, going back to uh, the Kurokura <clears throat> kiss and things like that, with uh, I can't believe such a big deal was made about a man kissing a woman. Oh, it wasn't a fact of a man kissing a woman. It was a man kissing a black woman. It's like right. right. Why was well, that when an was issue? Loving versus Virginia? I mean, you know, there was we had a the sixties were such a huge time for for civil rights yeah. and social progress that, you know, it, 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 a lot of people, they got a lot of letters over that. Now, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. nobody bats an eyelash. But, yeah, if it, if it becomes passe and if it becomes the sort of thing like uh, with, um, you know, the uh, the Sulu character in the films, you know, in the, in the Abrams films, yes. where it's yeah. just, it just kind of comes up in passing that he happens to be gay and have a family right. and nobody's going to, you know, be agreed. They're not going to clutch their pearls over it. It's just something that happens in, in a narrative sense and you just blow right by it. You'd and be nobody makes a big deal about it. People clutch their pearls about these days. Uh. I, I loved that moment in uh, Star Trek Beyond so much because it, it just Sulu was a character that we knew so much about. We knew that he was a, a, a sword fighter. Yeah. <laughs> we knew we knew look good with his shirt off. You know, we like uh, tea. We knew these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we knew all these things about Sulu. We knew that he had a daughter, but we didn't know anything about his personal romantic relationship so all jj abrams did well uh, not jj but uh justin lynn and simon Pegg, all they did was just add a piece of information it didn't negate anything it didn't change anything else they just added a piece of information to the character and it was i thought it was brilliant now, um, now didn't you, you gotta know george takei was, was yeah. grinning ear to ear about it too yeah, <laughs> I want to say I saw him tweet something about it at the time, but I don't remember what it exactly he's he said about yeah. it. But uh, yeah, I don't either. It, it's kind of really neat to see not only uh, well, since we're talking about Sulu at this point, it was nice to mm. see because we didn't explicitly know, like you said, whether or not Sulu was or wasn't gay or or anything about you know how Demora came along or anything else like that. Uh, just all we knew is you know the bare bones basics of what we knew about him. And to be able to, and, and I don't want to say that they added it because of George Takei and his uh, open sexuality uh, or mm-hmm. open approach to his sexuality, but it kind of felt like an homage to not just Sulu, yeah. but an homage to George Takei as well. Right. So I kind of find right. it hard to believe that he would be anything but pleased about that. So, 
Well, you know, it really is, it's, it's kind of endemic to what it is that they do, like John just said, of like, we're going to add a piece of information that's not going to change, it's not going to retcon anything that came before, it's just adding dimensions mm-hmm. to the character, and, and we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about, um, you know, fighting racism, we're going to talk about fighting xenophobia, we're going to talk about fighting, um, you know, homo and transphobia, by just doing little things like that, and a lot of that has just kind of come in passing, like, you know, uh, obviously... It's amazing how the, much you don't need to do for it. Right. It's amazing what, how much yeah. just representing <laughs> right. on screen gets yeah. right. the point like, across. Okay, the Klingons are the big bad of the original series, and then suddenly you get to Next Generation, and we've got Worf on the bridge. They've joined the Federation. You know, we've we've cleared that hurdle. The, the you know the racism thing doesn't need to be an issue with the Klingons anymore. Um, and then well, the same at, thing at one point it was Chekhov. a really big deal that that Picard was going to be you know assimilated into the Borg, and then suddenly years later we get Seven of Nine, and she's part of the crew. So just this idea right. of we're going to continually introduce quote unquote villains or or adversaries or antagonists, and then pretty soon they they become friends through processes unseen or seen or just kind of like hinted at in the narrative and you know it, it really is just a really subtle way of, of saying you know no matter how much at loggerheads you are with people who you think you don't agree with it's just a matter of time before you can really find common ground and start to work together towards building something better and we're st- and, and that was a yeah. really Go ahead, that, that was a really specific gene roddenberry thing is saying okay going into next gen we have to show that we've made progress in the yeah. 80 years between these storylines. Right. We have to show that we've been able to negotiate and find a peace. Uh, otherwise, what, what's the point? What, what we're, were we we're doing? Just, why, why were we boldly yeah, going in the first yeah. place if we haven't been able to build exactly. bridges with people who we originally were, were completely it. fighting with? They're still yeah. doing it, even right. on today's shows. Right. I mean, of course, Discovery takes place uh, uh, before TOS, uh, time frame-wise. Yes. Yeah. It's all a little wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, but... <laughs> um, the other thing that they've got going right now, the other new Star Trek program that they've got is uh, Lower Decks. And now, mm-hmm. everything you see in Lower Decks, you kind of take with a grain of salt because it's meant to be a little bit more comedy. It's meant to be a bit is more... Is it canonical? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> it is. To a certain extent, yeah. yes. And, yeah. and the thing I was going to bring up is... Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, first we had a Russian on the bridge of TOS, the, the original Enterprise. Then we had yeah. uh, a Klingon on the bridge of the Enterprise D. Uh, and now going into uh, Lower Decks, we've got a Bajoran officer. We've, I've, I believe mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of Cardassian officers mm. uh, at one point or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd have to go back and rewatch it, but I'm pretty sure I read something about there being a Cardassian officer. Uh, on the on one of the shows, I, I'd have to look it up, but uh, yeah. they're starting to branch out again. And and each time we push forward with Star Trek, each time we move forward, we find uh, inclusion of previous enemies. Now, mm-hmm. uh, we also find the reverse. In in season three of of Discovery, we are now uh, nine hundred and thirty five years, I believe, was the number that they set in the future. Sounds about right. From yep. the original Discovery mm-hmm. timeline, which was about. Uh, 15 years before TOS, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so about 920 years from TOS. So what we have in in this, and, and I almost want to say dystopian utopia, because, you know, Star Trek has always <laughs> been this this utopian vision uh, of, of what we want our future to be. Discovery doesn't necessarily start out that way. Discovery is fighting its way to be that TOS era uh, utopia, yeah. not quite there yet, yeah. and then they get thrust into the future, and now all of a sudden, uh, 
uh, spoiler alert again for anyone who hasn't seen season three, uh, the future is kind of a mess. Uh, yeah. through events uh, that they just call The Burn, which I, I guess I won't spoil The Burn for anyone who wasn't hasn't watched Season 3, but The Burn, uh, basically what it was, is an event that caused all active dilithium at the time of the event to explode. Which means every ship using warp drive at the time, or every ship using that power uh, at the time, exploded. Yeah. So it decimated the Federation. It decimated the Romulan Empire. It decimated uh, the Klingon Empire. It decimated everybody. It brought everybody and cut everybody cut everybody off right, from each other. Right. So you, you you lose your allies, your camaraderie, your your trade. You Which is what everything. the Federation yeah. was was this alliance, yeah. this grouping of individuals who are now ungrouped, unbound, yeah. cut off from each kinda, other, yeah, unmoored. Yeah. So you got this this fine utopia that's all of a sudden ripped asunder and you can see it in 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 the universe that we have in discovery it's it's very uh slapdash and and kind of trying to rebuild and this everyone's kind of uh uh jostling to get back into their own little corner and kind of stay off the grid now um which is interesting to see uh, but at the same time, and, and I know this is a long-ass way to go to get back to my original point, was that in Discovery, you have definite sightings, I did see them, Cardassian officers in the Federation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Another example of our enemies becoming our allies. And then our allies becoming our enemies, but that's neither here nor there. But um, it, it, with every... With every series, they manage to push forward and make friends of enemies. Uh, Picard does the same thing. Uh, we find out that uh, Jean-Luc, having uh, retired from Starfleet, uh, in a la throwing his badge down on the desk and saying, you can't fire me, I, or you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> um, but we have friendly Romulans. We have a, a, yeah. a decent relationship with well, what's ostensibly left of the Romulan Star Empire. Yeah. Um, and I love those Romulans, and I want them to have their own show or at least graphic novel. <laughs> you, They're you, awesome. Uh, this is so great. The, the, his housekeepers. The Quatmelage? Oh. Uh, oh, oh, you mean... Uh, his housekeepers. <laughs> they're awesome. We'll just God, we'll, we'll call so it good. the Vineyard. And we'll just, yes, yes, the Vineyard. Because weren't yes. they like Talshiar agents? That just, they were. That just yeah. ended up... Uh, they're just they just retired. They're taking care of Picard, <laughs> but they can still kick ass. I kind of want to show with with those two, and then with number one, he's got to be a part of that as well. Because yeah, right, we didn't get right. enough oh, screen time. Dog, yeah, yeah. No. Well, there is that sort of like classic character archetype of uh, you know the the, the quiet gentleman. Uh, you know, uh, even mm-hmm. even. Um, I, I don't know if it was if it was retconned or if it was always part of the character. I'm not that well versed on it, but like um, Alfred Pennyworth, who was Batman's butler, was uh, as XMI six, and you know, and, and I, yeah, he, right. Dude can throw down. He's he's a very genteel gentleman when he's 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 bringing you uh, your dinner on a silver tray. But if you fuck with him, he's gonna make your day really really yeah. bad. <laughs> I am gonna exactly. I'm gonna throw a, a blatant yeah. plug for the season two episode with my good friend Mark Ronner, where we talked about Pennyworth season one uh, mm. on Epics, uh, which explores just exactly that. Uh, yeah. The badass cool. side of Alfred Pennyworth. So nice. Uh, available where all fine podcasts are available. <laughs> um, 
So I want to take one quick break here again, and then when we come back, I kind of want to discuss uh, the narrative changes of Star Trek and and and, and where we're kind of going uh, into the future, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, cool. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. And so we were talking about uh, Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard and, and the way that they have managed to uh, continue portraying that message that Gene Roddenberry had initially envisioned, which was to uh, make uh, friends of your enemies uh, to kind of uh, too long didn't read it. But there was another aspect of uh, new Trek that I kind of <clears throat> wanted to cover with uh, with John. And, and that is that... Uh, when we saw uh, Trek originally, back in the TOS era, uh, it was very episodic. It was very uh, uh, monster of the week or theme of the week or... Single you know, freestanding episodes. Right. Something you could jump into <laughs> uh, just kind of off as you need to, but not necessarily something that had like a broad overreaching story, which in uh, I think kind of started to fade away when we got into things like Deep Space Nine right around season three where they introduced the storyline of the dominion war and that really i felt like was the beginning of a longer story arcs epic more epic story arcs uh which kind of changed the way star trek was told in my opinion now john what do you think about that yeah I, well 100 percent. you know at, at its worst the anthology style storytelling that tos was doing made everything feel very disconnected and characters can just be totally different from one week to another. Right. I feel like a lot of our, you know, a lot of our attachment to those characters uh, is really based on retroactively looking back at uh, not just the series, but then the novels and the animated series and the movies and all, because if you just take the episodes on their own, you know, a lot of those secondary characters are not, they're not doing much. It's, you it's know? very disconnected. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is fine because look at the time, it was very hard to control when they're going to be shown during reruns in right, what order, right. like it, you're, you're accommodating for all of that. Um, I think what Next Gen did very well is you still had a lot of those standalone episodes, but at least you had threads that connected the characters across the long arc. So you could see growth and change in Picard and Riker and you know throughout those seven seasons. Now we're at the opposite extreme, where it feels like everything from a character and story point of view has to be stretched out, teased, uh, has to be connected, and, and you're going to miss something if you haven't watched everything in great detail, in order, over and over again. Right. Um, but doesn't, don't yeah, you feel you know, that's what, kind of a natural extension of this whole streaming culture, uh, though? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and that that is the argument for the way that Star Trek is doing it now, which is, well, everybody's doing it. That's the way TV is told now. Right. You have to you have to keep the audience coming back, so you have to keep teasing out what's coming next and what the next reveal will be. There's a concept in storytelling, uh, and John, you know this, and and uh, it's 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 a it's called Chekhov's gun, and ironically, yeah. it has nothing to do with with Chekhov, the Star Trek <laughs> character. Uh, but Other the, Chekhov. The concept yeah. it's, it's Anton Chekhov, the playwright, and and his mm-hmm. principle was that every and this kind of informs modern script writing and modern storytelling, in that everything on screen needs to have a purpose. It needs to have a point. Um, the actual trope or or um, sort of like storytelling convention that it refers to is his principle in storytelling was if you have a gun on the wall in the first act, it best have gone off by the third, which is just a really yeah. short kind of uh, too long didn't read way of saying every single thing that you put on screen from every line of dialogue to every character to every every you know tiny fillip of, of background action needs to have a purpose or else it shouldn't be there. It needs to tie into right. a larger concept or pay off in a way down the road right. that makes sense or else you shouldn't be wasting your time on it because you have a very limited amount of space in real estate in your storytelling and anything extraneous needs to be cut out. So everything needs to have a yes. purpose and a reason and a payoff down the road in your story or else it, it's, it's, and, it's cut. And that exactly, I think, is the blessing and the curse of modern Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And, and especially... Especially Picard and uh, Discovery. I think Lower Decks has the benefit of being a half-hour animated show and and really original animated content per episode is maybe 22 to 23 minutes. So they have to be super efficient about their storytelling, sometimes a little too efficient, where it feels like they're just blasting through at warp speed to get to the next joke or to get to the next point. But uh, they know that, look, it's 10 episodes... It's 22 to 23 minutes per, so we've got to absolutely hammer away at exactly what we're trying to to tell here. You go to Picard, you go to Discovery, not only do you have multiple seasons, but now you got about 13 episodes per season and written and plotted out ahead of time. So you can go, oh, okay, well, we we, we want to take this character in this direction we want as an overall theme maybe this idea that connects all the episodes that we're doing and here are the stops we're going to make along the way and it feels like very often what you get is a lot of this build up a lot of this tease stretched out over 10 11 12 episodes and by the time you get to the 13th by the time you get to the finale it's like oh crap, we have to tie up all these other things and we have to uh, get in the, the major action scene, get in the major uh, plot point, and whew, now it's all over. So uh, what I would love to see, and this goes back to what you were just saying, Jim, what I would love to see is you know, how nice to have those things plotted out, but then you kind of hand it off to another writer or editor and say, you figure it can out. You take some, yeah, can, can you take maybe some of these ideas and, and maybe they only belong in like two or three episodes. Yeah. And there's an arc that we tell there because we can get in, we can tell the story we want to tell, expose everything we want to expose, and then get out and move along. It doesn't have to be 13 episodes that we're telling yeah. this. The longer any story drags story. on, the more the weight of the canon becomes something you always have to consider with every storytelling decision you make. And the, the sort of yeah. writ large yeah. biggest example of that that I can think of now is is I don't know how Kevin Feige keeps the whole MCU straight in his head, but you know right. uh, things right. like uh, the, the, that second season of, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. having to take place after the helicarrier crashed into the, uh, the, the headquarters and there wasn't S.H.I.E.L.D. anymore. So, you know, something like Trek that has you know one story that goes on 
over you know something like 50 or 60 years and you're talking about you know the weight of all of that and you have to be consistent among you know not just from episode to episode from season to season and, and from story to story but this all taking place in the same universe yeah. you know the universe it, yeah, it all has yeah. to be it's right. all got to work together and because you know obviously the entire subject of this podcast is fandom you have people who are devoted to it who who will if you make one mistake if you're a writer who is a fan but you haven't gotten nostril deep into the lore and figured out every little tiny thing and you you fuck up one small detail they're gonna let you know about <laughs> right. it wait a minute now right. wait does, does this then redcon what happened in you know season three episode you'll shut up you know so it becomes right. a really right. difficult Nerd. thing to keep track of <laughs> the, the canon the canon becomes both a blessing and a curse because you've got an established universe but you also have to make sure that you obey the rules you yourself have set up or you're you're gonna you're gonna hear about it. That's what I think yeah. is a lot of fun about uh, Lower Decks, uh, as I've seen it so far. Now, we've only had uh, one season with our, our good old Cerritos crew, but uh, uh, mm-hmm. they're, and, and they even said it explicitly in the first episode, they're not first uh, contact specialists, they're second contact specialists. They're second contact, So, yeah. they're the people yeah. that go and clean up the mess after, like, <laughs> Kirk goes and, and punches something, and then they have to go back and... Uh, rebuild right. and, and and make sure Landrew's fully dismantled instead of right. Uh, but they, they, it's it's in an, it's done in a way to to be homage. Like everything, everything mm-hmm. about about uh, lower decks is homage, start to finish. But um, in a way, it just kind of ties so tightly in and weaves its way in and out of all of these different stories that Star Trek has managed to tell. That they're kind of making their own little hole for themselves in all of that continuity. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, they'll feature a character like Q, uh, who we've only really ever seen bug a few people in this whole vast universe of space, of, of, of storytelling. Uh, you know, he bugged Picard, mostly. He bugged Janeway a few times. And he got punched by... Uh, by Cisco once (laughs) but uh, we get to see him pop in pop out and and, and just kind of be a general nuisance to these people that you wouldn't think he would have been a nuisance to which of course builds on Q's character quite a bit because it's like oh well maybe he wasn't just busy fucking with Picard maybe he was off (laughs) You know, popping from ship to ship, just so. And honestly, who amongst us who wasn't immortal, omniscient, and omnipotent wouldn't use our powers to just you know amuse ourselves? That's I've always. Yeah, he's totally. always been my favorite character it's in the entire universe. Wesley just you know, he's, he's the the, the, <laughs> the Mr. Mixelplek of the of the Star Trek universe. Just, I'm gonna, yes, I'm going to yes. mess around and find out. I'm just you know I can do anything I want. I know everything. Yeah. I'm just going to show up and, and sprinkle some Deus Ex Machina bullshit into somebody's life because it's fun <laughs> for me, and I can I, I love that. Yeah. I think that's why yeah. I loved his interaction with Cisco so much because how many people have just wanted to punch the smug shit out of him? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I will say this about Lower Decks. I mean, I, I think there was certainly kind of pacing and style things that took me a long time to warm up to. Uh, there were jokes that didn't always land for me, but by the time I got to the end of it, I felt like that season finale was among the best Star Trek season finales ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it really... So I don't know if you've gotten that far yet, but I really think they nailed it when they got there. Um, and the, the brilliance of that show is just filling in these little cracks in the, the, the Star Trek lore, you know. 
So well, telling those, those parallel stories, that. if we're not focusing on the major name brand antagonists, we're tell- I, I remember when I heard yeah. about the concept of Lower Decks, and I haven't really watched much of it, but I, I remember there was a, um, a limited run should. comic book series um, of, uh, I think it was like late 90s, early 2000s of DC, called Gotham Knights, and it was set in Gotham City, but Batman barely featured as a character. Bruce Wayne showed up a couple of times, but it was just telling stories of, of people who were just citizens, like ground-level citizens of Gotham City, and they were kind of like trying to navigate an environment in which Batman was a thing that existed. And it was interesting to see, yeah. because you weren't... It didn't focus on, like, big swashbuckling action or, or super heroics. It was just people trying to get through life in, in a world where, like, oh, we're get, they're, they're stepping over a bound-up Joker on the sidewalk, and how what, what does that do to your day? So, I've always right. found myself fascinated <laughs> right. in terms of, like... Yeah. You you know what? What are the story? What 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 is the story of the second contact crew? I mean, you, you know, we've got the yeah, the, yeah. the Enterprise crew boldly going and making this first contact, and you know, trying to reach out to, mm-hmm. to new civilizations and and all that. But then, what happens when they leave? And and the Federation has to kind of s- step in and and sort of de facto set up a society and say, okay, well, that was pretty exciting. Well, welcome to the Federation. Um, here's what's going to happen, right. and you know, right. that kind of stuff I find really interesting. So I, the whole concept of it really kind of just spoke to what I like to see in, in, in storytelling. Uh, in a really big way, and yeah. and they were able to make bad guys out of arguably one of the silliest quote unquote villains from uh, the original Next Gen series, uh, the Packleds. Now the Packleds yeah. were just kind of a uh, they were mentioned a few times, name dropped a few times, but they were kind of one and done sad sack villains. They were never really meant to be this antagonistic threat, but they. What they did with lower decks is they were able to take them to just this their 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 furthest extent, extrapolate it to yep. the furthest ideal of what Packlet society would have been, and it kind of did make them a little bit terrifying. These mm-hmm. these bullies who had this technology that they didn't know how to use, what to do with, and just uh, what is it? Too much money, not enough time. They got they they know what <laughs> they have all this stuff, and they just become. Uh, a threat. I wasn't going to say a bully. I wasn't going to say, like, uh, a villain, necessarily. They just become a threat. Yeah, and they are scary. Yeah, They kind of... Toddlers with an atomic bomb. Yeah, we are, precisely. We are strong. Precisely. Yeah. We are strong. We are mighty. Um, but, I mean... There seems to be this really big uh, narrative shift, and, and like we've talked about, I think it was kind of the advent of uh, H, uh, uh, the DVR TV uh, divulging or diverging away from where must-see television had been in the past. It gave us a much more um, easy way to ingest these shows in a linear fashion because uh, we weren't beholden to a TV schedule. We didn't have to follow the TV guy. We didn't have to fear missing a program. So we're able to get a lot more of these adventures uh, as they were intended, episodically, and in, in, in the order in which they uh, aired. And I think had that, I known that someday I'd be able to buy the entire Quantum Leap series on DVD, I wouldn't have made my entire life about sitting in front of. Because for a long time, that was like in my back pages. That was the only TV series I'd ever yeah. that I'd ever watched that I never missed a single yeah, episode yeah, of. Yeah. I was in front of the set, you know, hell or high water to How catch did you that feel show. About that finale. Um, you know, the less said about it, the better, but you know, okay. it was, uh, th- that, that, that's the kind of thing that you talk about when, when, uh, you've got a, um, a TV series that doesn't know whether it's coming back or not. And so they don't actually, they get canceled in the off season and they don't have a chance to shoot like a proper finale. Right, um, see, what and, pissed and me off get, about it was 
no, go ahead. The, 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 the super going over the screen saying, well, he, he never did make it home, and, and he uh, he just kept on leaping around. I'm like, okay, so first of all, like this whole idea of like, you know, we're, we're hoping to eventually get him home. He never does, and not just that, but he's going to keep on doing this cool shit, and we don't get to watch it? Fuck all of you. <laughs> Fuck all of you right in the ear. But, you know, still, it doesn't take away my enjoyment of having watched the entire... I thought it was... It's one of the most inventive series that's ever been on the air, but had I known, like I said, I have a, a DVD box set you know, sitting underneath the TV right now, and I'm probably going to watch the whole thing in a sprint over a couple of weeks if this pandemic drags on much longer, probably pretty soon. But had I known right, that right. someday the technology would advance to the point where we could go and get our TV rather than having to be there when they decided to serve it, I probably would have lived yes. a little bit more of my life on those Thursday nights <laughs> through the 90s, you know? Right, but but through DVR that, culture... That's the message and, right yeah. there. And, and through, uh, yeah. through Netflix and things like that, we're able to take in these longer story arcs, and I think that's really yeah. changed the way... Uh, like John was saying, that's changed the way that they tell these stories because now they have the opportunity to tell it uh, over a period of time instead of having to yeah. try and cram it each into little individual message chunklets. And well, so, what, what I want to see, though, is I, I really want to see people take advantage of you have the luxury of time. You have the luxury of being able to tell long character and story arcs and really go deep into a character. That's great. But at the same time, it's a real trick, and I, I think very few series have nailed the right balance. Like, still be efficient with the storytelling. If a story doesn't need to be told in six episodes, don't tell it in six episodes. Yeah. Tell it in two. Yeah, and, and, tell, and, and tell it in the, the Chernobyl series on HBO was a really good example of that recently. I mean, I listened to the Script Notes podcast with Craig Mason and John August, and Craig mm. was the showrunner writer of that. And six episodes is kind of like the, the cable miniseries standard length. And when the they approached him pitch. to do that, they wanted to get him on six episodes. And he said, you know what? I think I can do it in five. And, I, you know, yeah. anything, if I stretched it any farther than that, I'd be probably speculating on things that didn't happen. I'd be creating history where it didn't occur. And so he made it in five episodes and it wound up being, I think, on the IMDb list, tied with greatest series ever with Breaking Bad, and it won Emmys and BAFTAs and all this other stuff. So, you know, economy of storytelling, if you have... If you have a certain amount of episodes to fill, then yeah, that becomes we need to try and create content to fill those episodes. But if you can, you know, get your story out in a way that's more concise, then, you know, that just makes a lot more sense for certain certain types of stories over certain types of media. And, and that's my hope for the next Star Trek series for Strange New Worlds. Like, I, I want to see deeper character exploration and growth than we got in the original series. But I still want to see like a, a little more episodic approach. Like Star Trek actually has an opportunity now to break new ground and push the envelope by not doing what every other show is doing right now, which means return to a format that worked 30, 40, 50 years ago. Big groundbreaking again. I think they're going yeah, to. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's what I I, I, I think so too. I, I think I, I really have high hopes that we're going to get that right balance for me. It may not be the right balance for somebody else, but. Uh, where we get sophisticated writing of characters, sophisticated writing of stories, but you're not just sort of abusing the format right. where, oh, you, you got to watch all 13 episodes in a row and we're going to tease <laughs> out these little things you have to stick around for. So It's that schoolyard pusher thing. Once we get you hooked, you know, the first yeah, one's free and then right. going forward, you really you need to, to, to check everything out and just really have your, your thinking cap and your, your magnifying glasses on all the time so you don't miss anything. Exactly. Well, and I don't mean to, to, to push. I, I definitely think that we could talk about this for hours and hours longer. But uh, I know, uh, uh, John, you got other places to be and things to do. And so I want to kind of be respectful of that time frame. But, John is uh, not yet done with his Trek day. No. I am not. His Trek yeah, continues. Yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, I just, again, uh, from the bottom of my heart, John, I want to thank you for coming on the program once again and, and, and sharing your your obvious passion and your obvious uh, uh, affinity for... Vast knowledge of all things, Trek. Exactly Thank that. you. Thank you. I, I look forward to doing this again. Hope we can. Oh, I'm sure we will. Uh, but uh, right. on behalf of uh, Jim and I, I want to thank you all for listening to the Feel Your Fandom podcast. Once again, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Feel Your Fandom. Or you can find us on our our Gmail, which is feelyourfandom at gmail.com. Jim, what was that other email again? Uh, if you or somebody you know wants to be a guest on the show, um, or if you have a episode idea you'd like to pitch to us, then reach out to us at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com, and we will gladly uh, listen to what you have to say and see if we can't find a way to work together. Absolutely. And then, so from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you again for listening, and do please remember what I always try to remind you. Everything is fandom, and fandom is everything. Take care. <laughs>